Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology Episode 4 Freud and the Psychodynamic Approach So we're going to be looking at Sigmund Freud, whose psychodynamic tradition was developed and challenged by many other notable theorists, including his daughter Anna Freud, who worked on ego psychology and ego defence mechanisms, Eric Erikson with his psychosocial theory, Carl Jung, analytical psychology, Alfred Adler, individual psychology, and Melanie Klein working in object relations theory. The basic principles and assumptions of the psychodynamic approach are that our behaviour is determined by our unconscious thoughts, wishes and desires. Our conscious behaviour represents just the tip of an iceberg. Most of our thoughts and ideas are not accessible at that moment because they're in our pre-conscious or are actually totally inaccessible because they're in our unconscious. However, these unconscious thoughts and ideas can become conscious through the use of special techniques such as free association, dream interpretation and transference. These are the cornerstones of psychoanalysis. The psychodynamic approach has contributed to the development of talking therapies for mental disorders. It's also contributed to our understanding of personality, the role of the unconscious in our behaviour, ego defence mechanisms and the importance of the first five years of life on our adult personalities and shortcomings. Some phrases have become part of everyday language when we talk about things being on the tip of your tongue, a Freudian slip or say someone is repressing something or is in denial. All of these stem from the psychodynamic approach. So going back to the 1800s, Psychology had emerged and was flourishing. Most researchers adhered to either structuralism or functionalism, both of which explored conscious human experience. However, in 1874, psychodynamic theory was developed by German scientist Ernst von Brucker, who supposed that all living organisms are energy systems governed by the principle of the conservation of energy. Upon learning of this theory, a medical student named Sigmund Freud adopted and applied the theory to psychology. He dubbed this movement psychoanalysis. He suggested that psychological processes come from unconscious psychosexual energy. He then set out to develop a novel therapy aimed at understanding the motives that drive behaviour. Freud was highly prolific, reportedly working 18-hour days to develop collective works which filled 24 volumes. He published more than 320 different books, articles and essays. Although he published extensively, by the 1900s his work had failed to garner the attention he felt it deserved. It wasn't until the publication of his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, that he began to attract a small following in Europe. This group developed into the first International Congress of Psychoanalysis, drawing approximately 40 participants from five countries. Around this time, Freud was invited to lecture in America. 
the transcripts of the five lectures he delivered were translated into English and published in the American Journal of Psychology. As a result, interest in Freud's sensational theories grew. Although many theorists refer to him as the father of psychoanalysis, Freud himself declined to take credit for the movement. During the first lecture that he gave in America, he credited Joseph Breuer with its development, stating, If it is a merit to have brought psychoanalysis into being, that merit is not mine. I had no share in its earliest beginnings. I was a student and working for my final examinations at the time when another Viennese physician, Dr. Joseph Breuer, first made use of this procedure on a girl who was suffering from hysteria. That girl was Bertha Pappenheim. Shortly after her father's death, Bertha Pappenheim's family sought treatment for her regarding a variety of symptoms, including paralysis of the right side, hallucinations, refusal to eat or speak, visual and auditory hallucinations, and other things. Breuer, the family physician, diagnosed this constellation of symptoms as hysteria. Hysteria was a diagnosis primarily used for women presenting with a wide variety of symptoms, including physical symptoms and emotional disturbances, but with no apparent physical cause. The history of the term can be traced back to ancient Greece, where the idea emerged that a woman's uterus could float around her body and cause a variety of disturbances in the process. After Breuer and Freud began to collaborate on Bertha's treatment, Freud developed the hypothesis that her hysteria stemmed from resentment over her father's death. Bertha famously became known as Anna O., a pseudonym used by Breuer and Freud in a case study they published about her so-called hysteria. Since this time, many researchers have retrospectively diagnosed Bertha's illness and have disregarded the non-specific label of hysteria in favour of various things, including schizophrenia, temporal lobe epilepsy, depression or even drug addiction. Whilst the true nature of Bertha's condition may never be known, owing to her influence on the work of Freud, it is with some justification that she has been described as one of the most famous patients in the history of psychology. The treatment of Bertha is said to mark the commencement of psychoanalysis. Indeed, a well-known tool used in psychoanalysis originated from Bertha's decision to speak about whatever came into her mind rather than undergo further hypnosis. From these sessions, the talking therapy was born. Freud returned home and opened a practice specialising in psychoanalysis. Amongst other techniques, he employed Bertha's free speech methodology, which he called free association to treat nervous disorders. Freud's psychodynamic theory suggests that behaviour is the product of underlying conflicts between conscious and unconscious motivation. According to Freud, our behaviour is determined by biological and instinctual drives, and this is known as psychic determinism. In his book Beyond the Pleasure Principle, published in 1920, 
Freud came to the conclusion that all instincts fall into one of two major classes, life instincts or death instincts. He called the life instincts eros. These deal with survival, pleasure and reproduction as well as sexual pleasures. He called the death instincts thanatos and these encompass aggression, violence, indulging in risky behaviour and reliving trauma that can also be self-destructive. Freud had noted that people who experience a traumatic event would often reenact that experience. The most famous of Freud's life instinct drives is called the libido, which he originally used to refer to sexual energy. He later broadened the term to include all instincts that are oriented towards growth, development and creativity. Freud believed that many of the biological and instinctual drives go unrealised, and this means that people experience anxiety. Freud described anxiety as a feeling of dread which results from repressed feelings, memories and desires. In response, we develop defence mechanisms which can help prevent us from becoming overwhelmed by anxiety. Much of the development of the idea of ego defence mechanisms was done by Sigmund Freud's daughter Anna in her 1936 book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defence. Defence mechanisms have two common characteristics. They either deny or distort reality, and they operate on an unconscious level. Some of Freud's ego defence mechanisms have made it into everyday language, whilst others remain relatively unknown. When we describe someone as being in denial or repressed, say something was cathartic, these are all references to Freudian defence mechanisms. There are many ref of these defence mechanisms. The three on the current AQA A-level specification are repression, denial and displacement. Repression is when a distressing memory is forced out of the conscious mind to protect the individual from it. However, this is often not the end of the problem and the distressing memory may resurface in a number of ways until it's been dealt with. Denial is the refusal to acknowledge some aspect of reality. This can happen, for example, when someone is given bad news and they refuse to acknowledge it consciously. Displacement is when a person transfers their feelings from the actual source of a distressing emotion onto a substitute target. So if you've ever had an argument with someone and then gone out and kicked a door, this would be a classic display of displacement. A special mention goes out to the ego defence mechanism called identification. This was developed by Anna Freud and is defined as a way in which an individual makes themselves like someone else because they identify with that other person. This could be as simple as teenagers dressing in the same style as a celebrity or pop group they admire, but it could also involve a victim adopting the behaviour of a person who is more powerful and is hostile towards them. By internalising the behaviour of the aggressor, the victim hopes to avoid abuse, as the aggressor may begin to feel an emotional connection with the victim, leading to feelings of empathy. This ego defence mechanism played a role in the development of social learning theory, which considers why one person may imitate the behaviour of another person. 
You may also have heard of Stockholm Syndrome, which is an extreme example of identification, where hostages establish an emotional bond with their captors and adopt their behaviours. One of the most famous cases of this was an heiress called Patty Hurst, who was taken hostage and abused by the Symbionese Liberation Army, yet later took part in one of their bank robberies, infamously pictured wielding a gun during the event. She was put on trial later and acquitted because ultimately she was a victim of Stockholm Syndrome. A recent um, example of this um, occurs in the programme Money Heist. Those of you that have been watching the the Spanish programme that's been dubbed into English, where at one stage they talk about the uh, Stockholm Syndrome and how it might have affected the behaviour of the hostages. And it's a good programme. So, We can say that the unconscious and levels of consciousness are arguably Freud's greatest contributions to psychology. Freud also sought to explain personality. His explanation is known as the tripartite personality because it consists of three elements or levels of consciousness known as the id, ego and superego. Freud believed these were the key to understanding personality and behaviour. Freud believed that at birth a person is all id. The id is the primary source instinct, demanding, illogical, amoral and insistent. The id is ruled by the pleasure principle which aims to avoid pain and gain pleasure. The id is largely unconscious. The ego has contact with the external world of reality. It regulates consciousness and exercises censorship. Guided by the reality principle, the ego facilitates realistic thinking and formulates the actions for satisfying our needs. The superego is our moral code. The focus of the superego is to determine what's good or bad, right or wrong. The superego represents inherited societal ideals. Its role is to inhibit the id and to persuade the ego to drive for perfection in moral goals. Freud believed that we're only aware of a small amount of our mind's activity, and that most of it remains hidden from us in our unconscious, most like an iceberg. The information in our unconscious, though, affects our behaviour. We're just unaware of it. Freud's theories also placed a great deal of emphasis on sexual development. He suggested that disturbances in the early stages of our development, especially the first five or six years of life, have an endearing impact if not appropriately resolved. For example, in his earlier stage, the oral stage, he felt that difficulties here would result in an inability to trust, a fear of forming close relationships and having low self-esteem. His second stage, called the anal stage, would lead to an inability to express anger and a lack of autonomy. And in the third stage, the phanic stage, issues here would lead to the inability to accept your sexuality. So Freud's psychosexual model of development, it has five stages and can basically be summarised as follows. So the first stage, as I just mentioned, is the oral stage, birth to one year. You're focused on the mouth as a key source of pleasure. 
This is critical to later development. Too much or too little will lead to problems in adult life. Between about one and three years old, we're in the anal stage um, where we're focused on toilet training. Now, this might sound a bit gross, but toilet training is actually the first time in your life when you actually have to start controlling your behaviour. Until then, you can pretty much do whatever you want because you've got a nappy. So it does represent a sort of bit of a control fight about who's controlling what. The phallic stage lasts from three to six years where the focus is on the genitals and and there's no accident that this is where sort of gender identity is forming and this is why Freud links this with difficulties in later years. There then follows, according to Freud, a sort of latent period between 6 and 12 years where nothing much is really going on of any interest, followed by the genital stage at age 12 plus, where puberty will reignite your sexual instincts. Now, I have to say that most psychologists today dispute Freud's psychosexual stages as a legitimate explanation for the development of personality. However, his theories do continue to influence contemporary psychology. For example, most psychologists would agree that personality is shaped, at least in some part, by childhood experiences. Freud's work is a foundation upon which other theorists have built and developed new schools of psychology. Some extended the psychoanalytic model, others modified its concepts and procedures, and still other things emerged as a reaction against it. Freud pioneered new techniques for understanding human behaviour, which have led to successful treatments. Demart et al. in 2009 did a large-scale review of psychotherapy studies and concluded that psychoanalysis produced significant improvement in symptoms that were maintained in some circumstances for years after the treatment. Critics of psychoanalysis often claim there's no scientific evidence for psychoanalysis and that its claims are neither testable nor falsifiable. However, many claims of psychoanalysis have been tested and many of these confirmed using scientific methodology. In 1996, Fisher and Greenberg summarised 2,500 of these studies, concluding that experimental studies of psychoanalysis compare well with studies relevant to any other major area of psychology. Fisher and Greenberg's support for the existence of unconscious motivation in human behaviour and for the defence mechanisms of repression, denial and displacement add scientific credibility to psychoanalytic explanations of human behaviour. However, it's worth pointing out that Freud's view of women and female sexuality were less well developed, to say the least, than his views on male sexuality. Despite the fact that his theories were focused on sexual development, Freud seemed to remain ignorant of female sexuality and how it may differ from male sexuality. This led other psychoanalysts such as Karen Horney, who broke away from Freudian theory, to criticise his work, particularly his views on women and their development. Sue and Sue in 2008 argue that psychoanalysis has little relevance for people from non-Western cultures. Psychoanalysts believe that mental disorders are the result of traumatic memories becoming locked into a person's unconscious 
and that freeing them through therapy gives the individual a chance to deal with them in the supportive therapeutic environment. They claim that many cultural groups do not value insight in the same way that Western cultures do. For example, in China, a person who is depressed or anxious avoids the thoughts that cause them distress rather than being willing to discuss them openly. This is a contrast with the Western belief that open discussion and insight are always helpful in therapy. Support for certain aspects of Freud's research has been provided by the relatively new field of neuropsychoanalysis, a spin-off of neuroscientific research. Some contemporary cognitive psychologists have recast the Freudian worldview, adopting a more realistic view of what defines our unconscious self. Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman in 2011 has described the modern distinction between autonomic and controlled thought processes corresponding to unconscious and conscious processes in relation to decision making. Automatic thought processes represent one facet of the cognitive unconscious. This can be shown in several ways, including stereotyping, which is the cognitive component of prejudice. A way of tapping into the unconscious emotional component of prejudice is through the implicit association test. There may also be unconscious, or at the very least non-conscious, dimensions to emotion, observational learning, advertising, treatment of alcoholism, and understanding antisocial and prosocial behaviour. Freud's theory provides methods and concepts that enable us to unpack underlying meanings of behaviour. He may have captured the nature of human experience and action. His work was always controversial, but the idea of human beings as creatures in conflict managing irreconcilable and often unconscious demands from within us as well as externally, resonates. His ideas about repression, the importance of early experience and sexuality, and the inaccessibility of much of human nature to ordinary conscious introspection, contains profound ideas that have influenced the study of human psychology. Thank you for listening to the Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology podcast. It was written and presented by Mrs Lawrence.